0: Thank you, Sam, and good morning, everybody. It's, it's good to be here this morning, and uh, of course, if you're a guest, we do, uh, we do uh, welcome you. We, uh, we hope that you feel welcome here. We hope that you feel connected, and uh, again, make sure you stop by guest services and just give us that chance to officially welcome you this morning. We're going to continue today through the book of Acts in a series that we've been doing called Witnesses. And this series, actually, we began it two years ago, over two years ago. And uh, over the past two years, looking at the book of Acts, we've been uh, looking at the the birth of Christ's church and the empowering of the Holy Spirit and believers. And we've been seeking to understand how the spiritual principles that we see in the book of Acts apply to our lives. Now, if you've been with us since then, you might remember we actually started looking at this book when we were still meeting in the gym. There's a picture of us doing this series in the gym over two years ago. Now, some of you have joined the church since then, and you weren't here to worship with us in the gym, and some of you are like, they have a gym? (laughs) A lot has changed. A lot has changed in our church. A lot has changed in our world since then. But the mission that we are called to is still the same. In Acts 8-1, Jesus tells his disciples that they will be his witnesses to the ends of the earth, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Our passage today marks a turning point in the book of Acts. But through the church, the church in Acts, we are going to see uh, growth. We are going to see more disciples being made. And the church has already been growing. Disciples have been made and they face challenges. Things are changing. There's been persecution. But the mission hasn't changed. So what we'll see today in the book of Acts is how these disciples demonstrated faithfulness to the gospel, faithfulness to the mission of being gospel witnesses, and what is required for us to maintain that kind of faithfulness, to be faithful to the gospel here in our world in 2022. So let's pray, and then we'll get into the text. God, we thank you for, for this word for the truths that are in Scripture. We know that it gives us everything that we need for life and godliness and we pray that today you would open our eyes, open our hearts to understand what it is that you have for us in this text to see how we can stay faithful to what you are calling us to do, to the mission that you have called us, to be your witnesses to the ends of the earth. Direct our thoughts towards you. Allow us to be changed and open to being shaped by your word, that we can look more like your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen. So in Acts chapter 13, we are back in the church at Antioch. This is the church that was first introduced to us in Acts chapter 11. It's a very diverse congregation made up of of believers throughout the region. And if you remember, it was here that Christ followers were first called Christians in Acts chapter 11 in the church at Antioch. Barnabas was sent to the church at Antioch from Jerusalem. And as the church grew, he went to Tarsus to get Saul to be part of his leadership team. And there was a famine also that was coming to the whole world that we read about in Acts 11. And so the disciples, they had determined to send aid to Judea by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. In Acts chapter 12, verse 25, Barnabas and Saul have returned from their their duties, from serving the church in Judea, and they bring with them John Mark. So now they have returned, and we're here in Acts chapter 11, and Luke records for us what is taking place in the church at Antioch. In verse 1, he lists for us five men who were in the church who were prophets and teachers. We have Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Manaen, and Saul. So we have these five men, and Luke says that they were prophets and teachers, So as prophets, they would have received direct revelation from God about current things and future things. Uh, Prophets essentially are are mouthpieces for God. And so they would receive revelation, they would expound on that revelation. And in a similar way, as teachers, they would give believers a clear understanding of biblical truths. Now, not all teachers received direct revelation from God. So teachers were not necessarily prophets, but prophets would have been able to teach the word of God. And so we have these five men, and we have evidence from Scripture about who these men were. First, there was Barnabas. Now, Barnabas, he should be very familiar to us at this point in the book of Acts. He was a Levite from Cyprus, and he became one of the leading figures in the Jerusalem church. Luke writes of him in Acts chapter 11 that he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and he was nicknamed the Son of Encouragement because wherever he went, he was encouraging believers in their faith. He is probably the most prominent an influential leader among the Antioch Christians. Next, we have Simeon called Niger. Now, not much is known about him other than he was called Niger, which means black. So that was a nickname that he was given, and it either indicates very dark complexion or dark hair. Other than that, we don't know anything about him. Next is Lucius of Cyrene. And he was likely uh, someone that had arrived to the church at Antioch after the persecution that arose over Stephen in Acts chapter 11. Stephen was martyred, and so we had men coming from Cyrene, believers coming from Cyprus, to the church at Antioch. He may also be the same Lucius that later accompanies Paul on his third missionary journey that we read about in Romans chapter 16. Next we have Menaean. Now he's listed here as a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. You might remember from last week, we looked at uh, Herod Agrippa, and so uh, Herod Antipas is, is who uh, Luke is referring to here, that Menaean was a lifelong friend of. Herod Antipas had beheaded John the Baptist, and so he was the uncle of Herod Agrippa. And the word that's used here to describe Manan's relationship with Herod Antipas is indicative that he was not just a lifelong friend, but he was more like a foster brother to Herod. It was very common practice for people of high rank to adopt children into their families for the purpose of being a friend or a playmate of their own children. And Menaean's mother was uh, likely uh, serving Herod as well in his court, and Menaean and Herod were probably born at the same time, so Menaean's birth mother would have also nursed Herod. So he was more than just a buddy. He was literally a brother to Herod. So in the church at Antioch, Menaean would have been somebody of very considerable position and rank. And because of that intimate relationship that he had with Menaean, with Herod Antipas, he was likely the source for Luke for all the information about Herod's family. Finally, we have this man named Saul. He's last on the list. And for many of us, I think if we were to rank New Testament saints, this man would be at the top or at least near the top of our list as his testimony, he had a face-to-face encounter with the risen Savior and was converted. Uh, He wrote a majority or would go on to write a majority of the New Testament under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Yet here he's listed last in this list. So Saul is still very much in the background at this point. He's not really a central figure. He's not uh, yet in the position that we would know him for in the early church. Now, some commentaries also, when you look at this list of prophets and teachers, some commentaries and and Greek scholars might point out that there's a particle in Greek that would list prophets and teachers separate. So the first three, they would say, are the prophets in this list. And the last two, Manan and and Paul, or Saul, uh, they would be the teachers. So teachers are considered lower in rank, uh, so to speak, than prophets in Scripture. Uh, So again, Saul is not yet a central figure In the book of Acts. So we have these prophets and we have these teachers who are leading the church. And although Luke doesn't refer to them as as pastors and as elders, they seem to be functioning in that way, as leaders of the church. It's a team of leaders here in the church at Antioch. Now, verse 2 says that they are worshiping the Lord and fasting. Some translations might say that they were ministering to the Lord. So the the word that is used here in Greek for worshiping or for ministering is liturgeo. That's where we get the word liturgy. From. It literally means that they were performing some religious functions. They were doing their duties as the church leaders. They were preaching, they were teaching, they were preparing to administer uh, the Lord's Supper. So their preaching, their teaching, the things that they did as leaders were considered to be an act of worship. And that should be the same for all of us. Everything that we do should be unto God for His name and for His glory. And so everything that we do, no matter how we serve, no matter what our role is in, in, in the body of Christ, we should see it as an act of worship. Even, even the preaching of the word. You know, we're here for a worship service this morning, but we don't have uh, the part where we, we sing, and that's our worship, and then we get into God's word, and that's not worship. This is still part of the worship service. So when Pastor Mark or Pastor Carl or Pastor Nick or I are up here, we are serving the Lord by ministering to him, and we are worshiping when we are looking into this text. And that's how we should see everything that we do as followers of Christ. It is all worship to the Lord. So here they are worshiping. They are ministering to the Lord. And again, it's the middle of a fast. So they're fasting. Why are they fasting? They're fasting because they have a sense of urgency about something. They have a need to seek God's will for them, for the church. God is doing something new right now. The gospel is going out to the Gentile world. Uh, the, The church itself is facing persecution. Apostles are being killed. Apostles are being imprisoned. There's a famine And so they're fasting to seek God's will, to seek his direction. When you look at scripture and when you look at fasting, it's prompted by situations that are taking place. It's not something that just happens spontaneously. It's intentionally denying ourselves. Fasting is intentionally denying ourselves of the comforts that are found in the good things, the the legitimately good things that God gives us so that we can focus on him to be our comfort and our strength. It's something that God calls us to do when we recognize that we need his help, that we need his healing, that we need his guidance. And when we fast, it demonstrates our reliance on his strength as we seek his direction. So what was the purpose of their worship and fasting? It was to know God's will. They're seeking his will. So how do they do that? Through intentional, God-focused worship, prayer, prayer service, fasting, relying and trusting on him to guide and direct them. Now the immediate application for all of us here is that if you want to know what God's will is for your life, if you want to know what God is calling you to do, then you must submit yourself to him. You must be willing to allow his spirit to lead you and direct you wherever he wants. God has a plan and he has a purpose for each one of us. Every single person in this room, God has a plan for you. God has a purpose for you. And in order for any of us to even begin to know what his will is for us, we must submit to his ways, to his leading. Ultimately, his will for you is to bring glory to himself. Submit to him. Faithfulness in the gospel, faithful gospel witness requires submission to the Holy Spirit. And we'll see throughout this text that to be faithful to what God is calling you to do, what God is calling us to do, we have to be faithful to submitting to the Spirit. Faithful gospel witness requires submission to the Holy Spirit. If Christ is the Lord of your life, that means that you trust him with your life. We are called to be filled with the Holy Spirit, which means that we should be continually and increasingly every day yielding ourselves to his control in our lives. The church in Antioch was clearly a spirit-led congregation. Look again at verse 2. It says that they are fasting and they are praying and they receive a word from the Holy Spirit. So while they are fasting and praying and seeking God's direction, God speaks to them to give them direction. Now, it doesn't say exactly how he speaks to them, but it's apparent that he's speaking to them collectively as, as one body. And the Spirit tells them to set apart Barnabas and Saul, for the work that he is calling them to. What is the work that he is calling them to? They, they don't know at this point. Scripture doesn't tell us yet what he's calling them to do. He's just calling them. He says, set them aside for the work I'm calling them to do. And this is not, this is not how we uh, might typically think to send someone out to minister. We'd want to see a plan. Where are you going? How much is it going to cost? How are you going to raise funds? When are you going to return? Where are you going to stay when you're there? We'd want to see some kind of agenda. We don't know any of that. There's no job description or specific ministry at this point. They're just called to an unspecific work that God has prepared for them. So it's a huge step of faith for the church to send these men out. But they did it. They did it God's way, which meant that they went in faith. It was led by the Spirit. And again, this is not how we would do this. You know, can you imagine if if the Holy Spirit spoke to us and said, set aside for me Mark and Carl for a work that I have prepared for them? We'd say, well, what do you you mean Mark with a C and Carl with a K? Because right now is not a good time, but what we can give you is two marks with a K. That, you can use them. They took a huge step of faith. These were essentially their their lead pastor and associate pastor that were being sent out, being called out by the Holy Spirit and being sent for his work. Now, notice again here, verse 2. They're set apart by the Spirit. Barnabas and Saul, they didn't just have some kind of idea to go on a missions trip and try to convince the the church to send them or put together some kind of presentation to get the endorsement of the leadership. The Spirit called them and then the church prepared them to go and sent them out. They laid hands on them, symbolically confirming God's call and they sent them out. God calls who he wants to call to serve. And as a local church, it's our role to help discover that calling. It doesn't say that, that God doesn't speak to individuals, that he can't, he can't speak to us individually through our time in the word uh, by the spirit. And he's not going to use this uh, with just us alone in the word to reveal things to us. But it's in the local church gatherings, it's in the body of Christ, that our calling, what God is calling us to, is confirmed God intends for the local church as a whole, all of us collectively, to be sensitive to the Spirit in order to discover who he may be gifting and calling to service. So he calls your pastors, your elders, ministry leaders to be sensitive to the Spirit to to determine where he is calling somebody to serve. And he expects really the same of each one of us, to be sensitive to the Spirit, to see how God is leading us, to see how he's calling us to serve because He has prepared a good work for all of us. If you've been, if you've been saved... You're saved unto good works. You're you're saved so that you can serve the Lord. He's calling you to do something. So when a leader comes to you about an opportunity to serve, or when you get a a text from Pastor Tim, oh, ministry opportunities, right? Or, Or you get a notification about a 411 class, it's because we're trying to be aware of how God is calling you to serve. As pastors, we we want to equip you for a service. That's what we are called to do, to equip the saints for service. So we're trying to do what we're called to do in order to help you discover what God is calling you to do. And by God's design, we are responsible to do that and to help each one of you discover your gifts and direct you to the opportunities to serve and to use those gifts. So we look at your gifts. We look at how God has uh, wired you, how he's designed you, experience that he's given you, your personality, your passions, to see how he is working in your life and how he might be leading you to serve. And when someone is in the right ministry, and we've seen this here in our church, when someone is in the right ministry, the one that God has clearly designed them for and is calling them to, that person thrives in that ministry. The church grows and God is glorified. And that's what we want to see with each person. And that's what we see happening here in Acts 13 with the sending of Barnabas and Saul. The Spirit calls them, the church confirms the call, and sends them out. And again, it's, it's not a small commitment from the church. It's essentially the lead pastor and associate pastor who are being called out by the Spirit to go and serve. Again, not the way that we would do it, but that's the way that God does it. They had just returned from, from Judea, and now they're going right back out. But they go. They go by faith without seeming to have any idea of where they're going or what they're going to do or what they will encounter. They just know that, like all believers, they have a mission to go and share the gospel to the ends of the earth. So they're going in faith where the Spirit is calling them. So we see next that they travel to Seleucia, And from there, they sailed to the island of Cyprus. And you'll see a map on the screen just kind of circles uh, exactly where they're going. Cyprus was the homeland of Barnabas. And we see here in verse 5, they arrived at Salamis. They proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. So the first place they go is to the synagogues. And we'll get to that in just a second. But another thing we see here is that they have John to assist them. So this would have been John Mark. John Mark was someone that they brought back with them from Judea, and he was Barnabas' cousin. And he's also known as Mark, who would later become the gospel writer, Mark. So he was a very valuable companion to Barnabas and Saul. Uh, His duties would have included carrying uh, Old Testament scrolls or perhaps uh, writings that they had on Jesus' teachings. He would have been the main person to administer the baptisms and all the other duties as assigned (laughs) Uh, Mark was uh, was very uh, very valuable to them and it's likely that the documents that he would be carrying would have been the ones that would have been used to complete the gospel of Mark so again they stop in Salamis they proclaim the word of God to the, to the synagogues with Paul and <laughs> not yet Saul and Barnabas and John Mark and uh, they probably have some other people with them they probably have a team of of people that are part of their ministry team But again, they're going to the synagogues. So we know in Acts, the church is going to go out to share the gospel to the ends of the earth. They're going to go to the Gentiles, but they're still going to the synagogues because the mission is to proclaim the gospel to the Jew first. So as we continue through the text and and continue through Acts, we will see them continue to go to the synagogues first to proclaim the gospel. But now overall, the focus is going to move to the Gentiles. So they go to Salamis, and then they continue to travel to the other side of Cyprus, to Paphos, which was the capital of Cyprus. Uh, I won't get into everything about that city, but it was a very immoral city. And it's there that they encounter opposition. In verse 6, you see that when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus, so Bard Jesus is a, a magician, but he's a, he's a false prophet. He's essentially someone that's making a living pretending to have supernatural abilities and powers, pretending to have connections to angels and demons. He's just an illusionist. He's a deceiver. He profits from sleight of hand tricks. He's intentionally deceiving other people. And even though it, it, he's listed here as a, uh, He's Jewish, he has nothing to do with the God of the Hebrews. The irony here is that his Hebrew name is Bar-Jesus, which means son of Jesus, son of salvation. But he does not confess Christ. And this is a, a lesson for us here. First of all, sorcery, witchcraft are things that actually exist in this world. Satan wants us to think that it's just pretend. But we are doing battle every day with principalities and powers and demons in the heavenly realm. And there are people who engage with them and align themselves with their work. But our culture, they, they, <laughs> the culture wants to make it think, seem like it's not that bad. So we have movies and, and, and TV productions with huge budgets that make witchcraft and, and sorcery seem so fantastic and so cool and then when we face it in reality, it doesn't seem that bad because it's, it's not what we see in the movies. But if you're if you're going to, to fortune tellers or palm readers or things like that because you think it's good and, and useful and therapeutic, or you're looking at your horoscope, you are putting yourself in a position where you can be led astray. You're making yourself susceptible to things that Satan wants us to believe are not real, but they are real. God wants us to focus on Him. To understand his purpose and his will for our life. And we find that in scripture. But bar Jesus, we see him leading people astray. He's not even a real magician. It's, it's fake magic that he's doing. It's like when your uncle takes the quarter out of your ear. That's the kind of stuff that he's doing. It's sleight of hand. He's pretending to have divine power to lead other people astray. Most notably, the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. The proconsul would have been the governor of Cyprus. And we have an enemy that wants to deceive the nation, so it should be no surprise that here in the capital of Cyprus, the governor is being accompanied by a false prophet. But it doesn't seem like he's a man that's easily, easily swayed, Sergius Paulus. Look at verse 7. It says that he's a man of intelligence. Another translation might be he's a man of understanding. He's not satisfied with strange and mysterious systems of idolatry that existed here in the region. He's discerning. He's inquisitive. He wants to understand and know the truth. Now, he's accompanied by Bar-Jesus, but he's not necessarily settled on what he's hearing and what he's seeing from him. He wants to hear what Barnabas and Saul have to say and so no doubt Barnabas and Saul they're in Paphos and they visited the synagogue first and word had gotten back to Sergius Paulus about these two men that had this new teaching about the risen Jesus Christ so he summons them he wants to hear more so Barnabas and Saul again they don't have an itinerary they're going wherever the spirit leads them so they go where God directs and they go and see Sergius Paulus And obviously, this is something that God has providentially put together. But Satan does not want to make it easy for them. He uses this magician, Bar-Jesus, referred to in verse 8 as Elimus, to oppose them. Elimus is the Arabic word for magician or sorcerer. So this is likely a pseudonym that he had given himself to make people think that he was really a magician. And it says that he opposes... Barnabas and Saul. You might have a translation that says that he interfered with what they were trying to do. He interfered with the gospel. He sought to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Barnabas and Saul are a threat to bar Jesus. If he's in the court of the proconsul, he likely has power, rank, influence, riches. And when the worldly desires of power and influence Stand in the way of the gospel, as we saw last week. God is going to make an adjustment. And we, we will see him do that in just a second here through Saul. Now Saul, we see in verse 9, he is also called Paul. So this is the first time that Saul is referred to Paul in Scripture. And throughout the rest of Scripture, this is the name that he will use. Saul was a Hebrew, born of Hebrew parents. He was a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, and from the, the tribe of Benjamin, Scripture tells us. So he was about as Jewish as you can get. But Saul was also a Roman citizen. So as a Roman citizen, that meant that he would have had a Roman cognomen. Co Cog means together. Nomen means name. So it's a name that went together with his other name. It was essentially a Roman nickname that was passed down from father to son. So why does Luke mention here at this time this name? And why will he now be referred to as Paul. Well, he's standing here before this Roman-appointed Gentile governor sharing the word of God. Scripture does not indicate that Sergius Paulus had any kind of roots or connection to Judaism. He's not a proselyte. He's not even a, a God-fearer as Cornelius was. The only Jewish person that he's known to associate with is a false prophet. So he's about as Gentile as you can get. So the name Saul would mean nothing to him. He'd have, he'd have no point of reference for that name. So this encounter now between Paul and Sergius Paulus and Bar-Jesus, it, it marks new territory, ter- territory for the church. Saul is using the name Paul now because he's among the Gentiles. And, and Luke records this to signify there's, there's an intentional shift here in the book of Acts. As we begin to see, the gospel, which was for the Jew first, is now going out to the broader Gentile world in order to accomplish the great commission that Christ calls all of his followers to, to go to the ends of the earth, to make disciples of all nations. So Paul takes on his Roman name because the primary ministry that God calls him for is to the Gentiles. The application here is that if we are to be faithful gospel witnesses, we must be adaptable. Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19 to 23, it's on the screen. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside of the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means, I might save some. I do it for the all, for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. When God takes us into new territory, we have to be adaptable. He's going to lead us places when when. We are faithful as gospel witnesses to submitting to the Spirit. He is going to lead and direct us where he wants us to go, and we have to be adaptable. Barnabas and Saul, or Paul and Barnabas, modeled this completely in their ministry. They were key figures in the church of Antioch, and they could have made a huge impact had they never left, but they went where the Spirit sent them, and they adapted to whatever situation they encountered for the sake of the gospel. What does that say about how we must adapt for God's purposes. It says we can't be stubborn. <laughs> we, we can't do something a certain way because that's the way that we've always done it. Being adaptable, adaptable means you let go of personal preferences that you have for the sake of giving others the opportunity to know Christ more. If we were going to be faithful Gospel witnesses we can't expect those who are lost and in need of a savior to adjust their way of life their customs their languages whatever in order for them to hear the truth it must be the other way around as we saw last week our main objective our main objective as gospel witnesses is not to glorify ourselves And when we emphasize our preferences and our feelings and our way of doing things over someone else's need to know Christ, even if we say, I'll go, I'll share the gospel, but I want to do it my way and the spirit is leading you to do it another way, you're not making it about the gospel. You're not making it about Christ. You're making it about yourself. It has to be God's way. We have to get out of our comfort zones and be willing to meet people on their turf, on their terms. We've seen God calling us to do that here in this church with our college ministry. Three or four years ago, we didn't have a college ministry, but we we saw God opening doors, we saw college students attending our services, and God sovereignly brought things together so that now we have a pastor of student ministries whose role is to serve and minister to college students who are only here seven or eight months out of the year, who after four or five years, we don't see many of them, but It's our mission to make disciples. And so God is giving us opportunities to serve college students. And so we adapted to how we did things here as a church so that we can do that effectively. We have to be accommodating. We have to be adaptable. Remember, God is the potter. We are the clay. That is just a clump of wet dirt. Okay, that's what we are to God. And he shapes that and he molds us to whatever he wants us to be for his purposes. And part of submitting to the spirit is being adaptable for God's purposes. Ask God, how are you calling me, God, to adapt? How are you calling me to change for your purposes? Paul is adapting here for the sake of the gospel. So we see again, verse nine, He confronts Bar-Jesus for standing in the way of God and for seeking to turn someone away from the gospel. And look at what he says to him. Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, again, he's submitting to the Holy Spirit here. He looked at him intently and he said, you son of the devil. Now that's a play on words. Paul is calling Bar-Jesus out, telling him, you are not Bar-Jesus, you are not son of salvation. You are Bar-Satan. You are a son of the devil. You are an enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Paul boldly calls out Alimus for being a fraud and as a sleight of hand artist, being intentionally deceptive. He's deceiving others. He's leading them astray. And that's that's the work of Satan. That's what Satan does. He tries to deceive. He tries to lead us astray. And so Paul, he doesn't hold back. From letting him know you are a child of the devil. And what Paul does here demonstrates boldness. In contrast to Olimus who is under the influence of Satan. Paul rebukes him under the influence of the Holy Spirit. When we submit ourselves to the Spirit's leading. And allow ourselves to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We will have the boldness that is required to be a faithful gospel witness. 11 times in the book of Acts, these witnesses, these disciples of Christ, are described as bold, having boldness, speaking boldly for the Lord. Faithful gospel witness requires boldness. How do we confront opposition to the gospel? Do you confront opposition to God's word with boldness? The world does not care about the things of God. The world wants us to be okay with the things of the world. It wants us to be tolerant. The world says that the things that are evil are good, and the things that are good are evil. It wants the church, it wants the body of Christ to be accepting of that. And Satan wants to, to use people to make a mockery of Christ in the gospel. And, and when we push back, and we share the truth, <laughs> it, it gets a little hectic in the world. And Satan wants us to be intimidated. But as dark and as scary and and as intimidating and maybe hopeless as the world might seem, there is nothing, there is nothing that is a threat to God's purposes in his gospel. We must proclaim the message of hope and speak the truth in love because perfect love casts out fear. But we must do it boldly. Don't let the things of this world stand in the way of someone hearing the truth. Paul doesn't say, listen, bar Jesus. Barry, can I call you Barry? <laughs> Let's just agree to disagree. You have your opinion. I have my opinion. It's a different way of seeing things. Sergius Paulus wants us here. I just need to, to share this with him. He speaks the truth boldly. We cannot be timid when it comes to sharing the truth. The spirit, the spirit of God can make us bold for his sake. John 14 tells us that Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to be our helper. He teaches us all things. He uses us to speak God's truth. Jesus told his disciples, you're going to go to places where it's, it's going to be a little awkward for you. You might be intimidated. Don't worry about what you're going to say. The Spirit's going to give you the words to say. Because it's ultimately the Spirit who bears truth about Christ. If you are submitting to the Spirit, to the Holy Spirit of God, He will give you the words to say and the boldness with which to say them. So Paul boldly pronounces a curse upon Elymas. Look at what he says here in verse 11. And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately, Mist and darkness fell upon him. And he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. An ironic twist. The fake magician is struck with a, a real curse. Blindness. And the word that's used here for this mist that came upon him is, is a Greek word, akous. It's a medical term. And it refers to the extinction of sight by a drying up or disturbance of tumors in the eye. So Luke, under the inspiration of the spirit being a doctor, he knows exactly what is happening to a Lyman's here. And all of this is incredible proof that Bar-Jesus, Alimus, the fake magician, was opposed to God. You remember Acts chapter 9. Saul was going to stop the gospel from being shared. And he was met with Christ, and he was stricken with blindness. So Paul, he has that in mind, I'm sure, as this is happening when someone wants to, to stop God's mission from being accomplished, Paul is thinking, he just makes them blind. <laughs> and I'm sure that he has a hope here that this blindness, like, like with Saul, this blindness will lead him to repentance. Now, we're not told what happens to him after this, but regardless, what takes place here in Acts chapter 13 is a miracle. The effect is that Alimus is so blinded that he suddenly loses all sense of direction and he needs people to lead him by the hand. So the sleight of hand artist now has to lead people by the hand. The person who would work deceptively to play tricks on people's eyes now cannot see. And you know, how much do we take for granted? The grace that God gives us. How dependent we are on him for our senses and how easily he can take them away from us even more reason to be submitted to his guidance to walk always by faith and not by sight and at this point alimus has neither faith nor sight and what we see after this was that the proconsul had faith the proconsul believed there's nothing here to indicate that this is not a genuine conversion the proconsul was saved he was convinced that Elimas was an impostor and he places his faith in Christ. One man is physically blinded, another man's eyes are open spiritually. But what caused him to believe? It was not the miracle that caused him to believe. Look again at verse 12. The proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. What was taught to him? The word of God is what caused them to believe. He was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. The word of God is living and active. This has the power to save. He was astonished at the teaching of the, wor- of the word. The word of God does something that magic tricks cannot do. The word of God has the power to save. It, it, it God could give us gifts and ability to do all kinds of amazing things in his name. But if we don't preach the truth that is revealed in scripture, how are people going to get saved? Romans 10. If someone's not preaching the word, how is anyone going to get saved? You have to preach the word. The gospel is the message that Christ has called us to go forth and deliver to the ends of the earth. That which is written in scripture, we are called to deliver that message. All of this, this entire book, testifies of Jesus Christ. This is what we were called to take to the ends of the earth, to share. That's why Elimus was blinded. He was opposing the mission of God. He was opposing the word of God. And you're not going to stop God's mission. The gates of hell will not prevail against what God is trying to do. Nothing can get in God's way. That's why we don't have to be timid. That's why we can have the boldness in the spirit because God's mission is going to be accomplished. Alimus was opposing the gospel which had the power for salvation. He was getting in the way of God saving souls. Now it doesn't tell us exactly what Barnabas and Paul were sharing that caused them to believe but it had to be the gospel. The teaching of of the lord that they shared with them likely could have been from the documents that mark was carrying that he penned himself about the teaching of jesus which were inspired by the holy spirit so Sergius Paulus was probably saved by scripture by the living and active inspired word of god and faithful gospel witness requires that the word is preached it was the faith in what was written in the scripture That caused the proconsul to believe. Not the miraculous works before his eyes. That miracle may have aided, it may have helped in making the truth of the gospel more clear. But again, that was not what saved him. It was the word of God. The teachings of the Lord are what caused him to be saved. The good news of God's gracious gift to man in Jesus Christ on the cross Again, our way, we might tend to think that if, you know, if I could just do what the apostles did, if I could just do a couple miracles, maybe if I could make somebody blind or make somebody lame walk, then people would listen to what I have to say. But Jesus did miracles. He was rejected. Even after his resurrection, his own disciple didn't believe it, and he had to touch the holes in his hands to believe. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe, because their faith is in the word. God saves people through the word. That's how people get saved. That is why if we are to be faithful gospel witnesses, we must preach the word. This is the source of our faith. It is the message of Christ as written in scripture that saves. People cannot believe if we do not tell them what God is calling them to believe. If we are not telling other people, if we are not telling the lost that they are sinners who deserve the wrath of a just God, that Christ died for them to be an atoning sacrifice, that he rose again, then we are not preaching the good news. We are not telling them something that is worth believing. We are not telling them something that will save them because there is no message on earth that is more astonishing, that is more important, that is more worthy of being told than the message in this book. Amen? Amen. Nothing was written about Sergius Paulus after this encounter, but this conversion that takes place here should give us hope. It should be a hopeful reminder that God intends for us to be faithful witnesses of his gospel and that he intends to use that message to save others. God wants us to be faithful to sharing that message. To be faithful means that we demonstrate a willingness to do things God's way. He has designed each one of us for his purposes in order to bring glory to himself. So to be faithful to what he is calling each one of us to do, we must allow the spirit to direct us. We must be adaptable. We must be willing to step out of our comfort zones to accommodate for the lost. And if we do that, if we are faithful to his leading, he's going to put us into situations where he can use us for his glory. And he'll give us the boldness in the Holy Spirit to share the truth. Do it his way. The mission that Christ has called the church to will be accomplished. And the Spirit of God wants to use us to accomplish it. Be faithful to what he's calling you to do. Share the gospel. Submit to the spirit. Watch him work. Let's pray. Right now, just, just ask God. Just ask God to give you eyes to see what he is, what he is calling you to do. Take this time to submit to submit to the Holy Spirit, to give him control of your life. Ask him how he is calling you to adapt, to be molded for his purposes. Ask him for the boldness that is required to share the gospel. Because God, we know that we do not need to fear what man can do to us. We have been saved, we have been changed And the same God who has saved us, the same God who has risen from the dead, his power is in us by your spirit. Lead us. Lead us by your spirit to wherever you're calling us to go. You have sent each one of us, your followers, out with a mission to proclaim the good news, to proclaim the gospel to the lost, to the ends of the earth. Help us to walk not by what we see, but by faith, knowing that you are directing us when we are submitted to your Holy Spirit. We know you can do great things. We look forward to what you can do in each one of us for your glory. When we follow you, thank you, in Jesus' name.